What is the perfect story? Does it exist? Is there a tangible formula? Has the perfect story ever been told? And if so, are we simply trying to retell the story over and over? This podcast is called The Midnight Myth, and somewhere between the black of night and the break of dawn, there is a story, and it's perfect. My name is Derek Jones. And my name is Laurel Hostack. Welcome to The Midnight Myth. Back to the Midnight Myth, everybody's favorite history, mythology, philosophy, and how those subjects bubble up into our popular storytelling podcast. As always, I am very excited to be back with another Midnight Myth. We're doing another holiday bonus special. So this is a little bit of a departure from the standard Midnight Myth formula. And Laurel and I do like to do these where here we are, we are actually recording in New Year's Eve 2022. It is 7.50 in the p.m. Our son Arthur is fast asleep, and we thought to ourselves, to celebrate the new year, since we're not going to be out at some grand ballroom party, we're not really doing anything. Maybe you're not. You're going to a party tonight? Yeah, I'm going out later to a masked ball. Unmask. 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 The Red Death holds sway over all. No. Excellent. Um, we figured it would be worth our time, hopefully your time, to do our Midnight Myth 2022 year in review. How this is going to work, we want to check in with our year, how it's been going for us. Hopefully, hear from you guys how your 2022 was. And talk about some of the media that we interacted with in 2022, connect some themes, talk about what resonated with us and why. The things that we're talking about don't necessarily have to have come out in 2022, but it's something that Laurel and I had to have seen in 2022. So it may be topical, it may not be topical, and we're going to kind of run down our top five things. But before we get too deep into it, Laurel, do your thing. We would love to hear from you. So if you're not following us on social media yet, please come see us on Twitter. We're at The Midnight Myth. We're also on Facebook and on Instagram at Midnight Myth Podcast. And we're on the World Wide Web at MidnightMyth.com. You can also check out our merch store at bit.ly slash shopmyth, or there's a link to it from MidnightMyth.com. And I would also implore you to check out my other podcast, which is called Sleep and Sorcery. It's a folklore and fantasy-inspired sleep series. And I tell original sleep stories inspired by the stories that we love. Awesome. And fellow travelers on the path of the beam, Wheel of Ka will be back really soon. Steve and I are pretty much done with our read of The Shining, and we're going to be putting a record session on the books. So if you haven't read The Shining and want to read it, 
it's a pretty big book, so I would say read it now. Take some time off and just read through The Shining, um, or if it's one of your favorites and you've read it a thousand times, we'd love to see you on the path of the beam discussing Stephen King's The Shining. And eagle-eared listeners will realize that we just made a Shining reference in the beginning of this episode with the masked ball. So now, at New Year's Eve, is a, as good a time as any to read The Shining. All right, so let's just do a quick check-in. What was Derek and Laurel's 2022 year like? It was an insane and crazy year. We did not hit all of our podcasting objectives that we wanted to. We definitely wanted to do more Midnight Miss than we were able to do. But Laurel's podcast, Sleep and Sorcery, really started taking off, which was really cool to sit there and see as your husband and podcast partner to see you do this nude podcast and to see how many people so quickly gravitated towards it. And if you're not listening to it, you really should if you like the Midnight Myth and you're looking to some for something to help you kind of drift off to sleep. I know you already plugged it, but I'm kind of plugging it again. No, I Sorry. appreciate it. Um, so it was a really awesome to see that. A few things. Laurel and I bought a house, moved, and sold a house. That was a huge new development. We went from city people to suburb people. So we used to live in the city of Philadelphia. We now live in the suburbs of Philadelphia. And we did that amidst inflation and rising interest rates and the housing market going from completely and totally impossible to buy a house, which was when we bought a house, to completely impossible to sell a house, which is when we sold our house. And we sold that house this week. We just closed a couple of days ago. So this will be our second night popping champagne or Prosecco this week. Absolutely. It's also New Year's Eve. So of course we got to pop some champagne. So that has been one of the biggest things that we've been working on in our personal lives that made it a little difficult to really podcast as much as we'd like. But we did do some really cool, memorable podcasts this year. I think we did a really good job with our holiday podcasts, and we did a lot of streaming. Now, as many of you know, Laurel and I are huge fans of movies and huge fans of going to the movies. However, we haven't been to a movie since January of 2020. So it's coming up to three years since Laurel and I have been to a movie together. You went to one movie by yourself in 2021, was it? Yeah. And was The Green Knight, if I recall correctly. Correct. And I have not been to a movie, and that was when we saw Birds of Prey in the, in the movie theaters. So our consumption of movies has completely shifted. First, it was the pandemic, and you couldn't go to movies. Then we had our son born, and it was still a pandemic, and you couldn't go to movies. And now it is still very hard for us to get a night out, let alone to kind of drop everything and go see the latest movies. So we are really far behind on movies. If it's not streaming, we probably haven't seen it. For example, it is almost January 2023. We have yet to see the latest MCU hit, Black Panther, Wakanda Forever. Which is crazy because we love the first one so much. It's personally my favorite MCU film. So I was like, we got to get a sitter and go to Wakanda Forever. But the thing is, it, it's really hard to pick what you get a sitter for because that SHIT is expensive. And it's really hard to get a sitter. It's not a foregone conclusion. 
So if it wasn't streaming, we, we didn't really see it in 2022. And we did a ton of streaming, in particular in streaming TV shows. Things on Apple TV+, Plus, things on Netflix, Amazon. That was the main thing that we did. In season, or in um, this past year, The Boys Season 3 launched. I had been watching The Boys on my own, and Laurel had not been watching it. Right. I had been just turned off by season one and the, like, hyper level of ultraviolence. And I'm not necessarily, like, the most squeamish person in the world, but there was just a line that it crossed that I really couldn't get past. And Derek really kind of twisted my arm about it. And eventually I agreed to do it, but I agreed to do it on one condition. So I entered into a pact with Derek where if I watched seasons two and three of The Boys, I had already seen season one, then he would watch whatever show I told him he needed to watch, no matter how many seasons it had, no matter how many episodes it had, he had to watch through the whole thing. So I chose Veronica Mars which is one of my top three favorite shows of all time. And I keep bragging that I only had to watch two, like, eight-episode seasons of television. And Derek had to watch three 22-episode seasons, a movie, and an eight-episode limited series. So I really feel like I got the really awesome end of the bargain here. But I think at the end of the day, it was a pretty fabulous bargain that we made. Well, here's the thing. I didn't go in with my eyes closed. I knew exactly what I was going in for. I knew there was a lot of Veronica Mars content and I knew you had been wanting me to watch it for such a long time. To me, it was a win-win because I thought you mis not misunderstood, but I thought you misjudged the boys and that if you gave it another shot, you'd like it more, which you did. And you wanted me to get into the show Veronica Mars, which Honestly, without you in my life, Laurel would probably have never even been on my radar, which I did. And because of that, we both got to see these shows that each other loves and got to share them. So to me, no matter, it wasn't about the time um, and hours spent in content consumption. To me, it was the level of love we both had that made it equitable. Yeah, it was absolutely a win-win. There were things that I had to kind of hold my nose for, violence-wise and graphic-wise, but at the end of the day, I found the boys really valuable even through that stuff that was hard for me to stomach. And really, it, it was about the characters and it was about the critique of the genre and the critique of society that I thought was, was quite valuable. Well, let's get into our top five. So here's how it works. Laurel and I have a list of five. They are not in ranked order, meaning we're not saying we're going from our least favorite to our favorite. These are all things that we consumed this year that we wanted to talk about in a kind of round-robin way, and we like them all equally. Laurel, would you like to go first? Yeah, so Bluey, Blippy, The Mickey Mouse Clubhouse, Sesame Street, and Daniel Tiger. I mean, that's a lot of high-quality children's <laughs> entertainment, which, to be fair, that's the thing we have consumed the most Oh all God, of the hours shows, and hours and except hours. Daniel Tiger, we haven't really watched. All of the other ones, we have watched ad nauseum. Arthur and I were really into Daniel Tiger for a minute, and then it was all about Sesame Street, and then we moved on. And now, but, now it's Moana, which we have watched a thousand times. Oh, so many times, which I'm not complaining about. It's a great movie, and it does not get old. Anyway, so for real, my top five, I'm just going to start with one of them, right? 
Yeah, we'll do, you'll do one, I do one until we do all five. Great. Uh, so in no particular order, one of my top five is HBO's Our Flag Means Death, which came out early last year, early this year, uh, in 2022, and it is the story of Steed Bonnet, the ge- the gentleman pirate. Again, spoilers. I don't know if we said that yet, but there will be spoilers, spoilers probably spoilers. for a couple of things that we talk about. Um, Our Flag Means Death really caught me by surprise. I remember seeing the trailers for it and being like, Reese Darby is in it, Taika Waititi is in it. Like, we're going to love this. It'll be hilarious. It's a pirate comedy. What can go wrong? And it really was a very different animal than I thought it was going to be. I expected a very, like, Flight of the Concords-esque comedy where I was rolling on the floor laughing at how um, ironically detached and, like, humorous it was about awkwardness, you know, that kind of comedy. And it never really sent me laughing out loud, but from, from the point when it starts to introduce the relationship between Steed Bonnet and Blackbeard, and it shows the incredible chemistry that those two actors have, Reese Darby and Taika Waititi, suddenly it revealed itself to be this incredibly sincere, heartfelt story about being your true, authentic self, even if that's at sea, even if that's on a pirate crew. There was a really meaningful story and a really meaningful love story to be told amid uh, some comedy that didn't all it didn't always land, right? It wasn't you, the funniest show. You didn't think it was funny? I thought it was funny, but it wasn't like it wasn't the laugh out loud comedy I thought it was going to be. It really got to me in a more um, in a more genuine way, in a more like it got to me in a way that was just like it, it got right to my heart. It's hard for me to explain. I mean, that's fair. I really loved the show, but for totally different reasons. I didn't look at it as not very funny, but more sentimental. I looked at it, and yes, it has some heart to it because at its core, it is a love story, but it's also very absurdist and hysterical and weird and wacky and all the things that you get when Taika Waititi puts puts his name to something. So I really enjoyed that the era of pirate being a such a small era of time in human history has so captured the imagination that it can still be reworked and redone in new and in fresh ways. And what I liked about it as well, though it plays in the pirate genre, it is not pirate deconstructionist in that it's not saying there's something fundamentally wrong with this genre or wrong with this era or wrong with this time. No, it's celebrating that like, hey, all of these guys stuck out at sea for a long time. They definitely banged each other. Yeah, and at, at its core, it's a really queer story. It's queer through and through in many senses of the word. There are gay relationships. There are people who are trying to figure out their gender. There are love stories where nobody knows if this is going to work and nobody's done this kind of relationship before and they don't know how this feels. But it's it's true and it's real and there's something about the pirate world that is transgressive that is against the grain that is outside society that is outside normal conventions that allows that kind of story to flourish and it's really beautiful and yeah it is funny it's a different kind of funny than i expected but it's all about love 
It's about family, it's about chosen family, it's about finding who you are and finding your truth. And it was all very unexpected for me. At the end of the, uh, the season, I was like, I need new episodes right now. It was one of those where I was just like, I can't wait to see these characters meet again because I just felt like they had welcomed me into their family. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Very cool. So let's go on to my first one. Great. Unlike, I think, the, the Our Flag Means Death plays with the pirate genre and kind of upends some tropes but is not fundamentally deconstructionist, my first pick is going to be a work of deconstructionist. And to me, that is The Boys Season 3. We live in an era and time where the comic book narrative, the comic book genre is the dominant prolific, profitable force in the entertainment business. And as that happens with the rise of the MCU, um, and I'll even give some love to the DCEU in there as well, when you have these juggernauts, though nothing really compares to Marvel, then there, there begs the question of like, is this okay? Is this the right thing to do? Are we even telling honest and genuine stories anymore? This echoes what happens to the Western in a previous era of cinema with the rise of the spaghetti Western, which was deconstructing the idea, and they called it the spaghetti Western because a bunch of Italian directors made them, deconstructing the idea of the cowboy as a hero and making them more these weird, shady anti-heroes. And that's like Clint Eastwood with the good, the bad, and the ugly, for example. And Clint Eastwood from The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly is the inspiration for one of my favorite postmodern deconstructionist heroes, which is Roland Deschaines, who's the main character of Stephen King's magnum opus, The Dark Tower. So I have some love for some postmodernist breaking down and deconstructing the genre and turning it on its head. And there's a lot of that happening in the superhero world, but nothing really cuts to the core of it like The Boys, and I would like to specifically call out The Boys Season 3, because The Boys Season 3 understands the superhero genre as a capitalist American story and as a capitalist American media story, and that that is interlinked with all layers of American life, in particular American politics, as the character Homelander steps into a Trumpian-esque political role, and it even ends with him, spoiler alert, using his lasers to kill someone in a street in New York and not lose a single survivor, not lose a single supporter, pardon me, similar to what Donald Trump bragged in 2015, that he could shoot someone in Fifth Avenue and he wouldn't lose a single supporter. And I really enjoyed how that the the boys has evolved and become deeper and deeper into the deconstructionist of the comic book genre. That comic books on a certain level are about brute power and about brute strength and those who can wield the brute strength 
And if they are wielding that strength, that there's something that's fundamentally bullish, fundamentally might makes right. I'm going to go outside of the conventional norms and rules. And I loved how the boys season three, in particular with Homelander's story, who continues to be the most compelling character in that show, is deconstructing the entire superhero genre and integrating it with contemporary politics in a way that was both in your face, but also a little subtle. I thought that was really, really cool. It did some work to build a little bit of sympathy and a little bit of understanding for Homelander too, without stepping into a place that goes so far as to make him a truly sympathetic character. It just gives you that ounce of nuance that you need to keep investing in this figure who seems at the outset pure evil, pure psychotic. And it, it does that, I think, in a way that is gentle-handed enough to still keep a little bit of distance from the character and not go all the way in. You don't want to build too much sympathy for a character like Homelander because then you end up with like real Homelander supporters. So I thought that was a really interesting touch. I agree that this infusion of capitalism and media and politics and how deeply intertwined they are is a much more interesting and much more nuanced way to approach deconstructing the comic book genre than some other versions that I've seen. And one of the things that I worried about with the boys, and really, at the end of the day, it really was the violence that held me back. But I also felt like I had seen this story before, right? I had seen The Watchmen. I had seen enough deconstructionist superhero movies or stories. And I had seen the Snyderverse, and I didn't necessarily need another entry in this, but it does set itself apart with the way that it unabashedly gets to the core of the things that make American society American society and says, hey, all of these things are poisonous and superheroes are an exploitative vein of that poisonous arm of America. Yep, totally agree. And you also had the theme of fathers and sons running through that and wanting to have your family and be connected to your family. And that is something that's always kind of, kind of, Gonna get me these days you now can, that you I'm the father of the Relate to that, I guess. I really truly relate to that. All right, what's your what's your next one? All right, White Lotus. White Lotus season two came out this year, and I feel like everybody was watching it. It was one of those moments where I feel like everybody was watching the same thing, and we were all like, "Who's gonna die? Who's gonna live?" Spoilers again. Don't listen past this if you haven't finished White Lotus season two. I was just addicted to this season. It even season one. Uh, it felt this way, but it, particularly season two just felt like a really delicious cocktail that I know is really bad for me and I'm going to have a hangover in the morning and I'm not going to feel good about it, but while I'm drinking it, it's so delicious. And I feel like that beautiful, juicy melange of toxicity that goes into an episode of White Lotus and that is so, like, bitter and you can laugh at it and it also makes you feel kind of squicky. That's just such an interesting thing that Mike White has tapped into. Like we're watching mostly awful people, some people who have redeeming qualities, but mostly awful people do awful things on this beautiful vacation. And I'm, I envy them, I'm jealous of them, I hate them, I love them, I wanna be them, I never wanna be anything like them. There's just something about it that has really hit a nerve. And it also gets a lot of this kind of classic 
who done it that it's flipping on its head. It gets a lot of this classic, especially season two, gets a lot of classic Hitchcock kind of stuff going on. And it's just really delectable. I think, you know, five, maybe 10 years ago, there was a rise in the true crime genre where everybody was consuming, be them podcasts, documentaries, TV shows, etc., that all had to do with real-life crimes, mostly grisly murders committed, and that was a huge thing, and it's still very popular today. But I feel like the pendulum has swung a little bit that out of America's obsession with true crime, we now have the return of the whodunit the murder mystery show who gets killed, who pulled the trigger show. And I think 2022 was a really good year for that genre. And I think to me, the creme de la creme of it was white Lotus, not a whodunit in a traditional sense. It starts with someone dead. And then we're wondering who is that person going to be? And how did they get there? And is it going to be a murder? Is it going to be an accident? And this show juxtaposes beauty and ugliness in these really cool, um, you know, polar extremes. You have some really beautiful places with these really ugly people, though not physically ugly, but spiritually, psychologically ugly. And then you have this, who of these characters is the one that deserves to die? Who of these characters is the one that deserves to die but might live? Who of these characters doesn't deserve to die but might end up? So you have this specter of death above this really engrossing, I would call it a comedy. Yeah. Like if there's a genre that it fits. It's a dark comedy, yeah. Yeah, this dark comedy. And I thought also, I think really needed right now are new ideas and thoughts about toxic masculinity. Yeah. And how to deal with toxic masculinity. And I think both White Lotus season one and season two have that there. And I think season like season one has it there with the, the teenage son who connects to like actual supportive men and becomes a rower. And he wants to like, instead of being trapped in this cycle of toxic masculinity and toxic capitalism, he's like, yo, I just want to roll with these cool dudes, you know? And then season uh, two, I think, it was all over with with the misogyny of the um, Christopher Moltisanti's character. <laughs> Dominic, That's, yeah. Th- thank you. <laughs> Dominic, who played Christopher Moltisanti in The Sopranos, with him being a philanderer, his father being a philanderer, and his son end up falling in love with a prostitute. Yeah, and his son vocally being a, a real reaction against his uh, father and grandfather, and then at the end of the day really proving himself very much uh, chip off the old block. You see the three of them watching this beautiful woman walk by off the plane, ogling this woman, and it shows that you know not much has really changed and the apple doesn't fall that far from the tree. You also get this kind of tragic operatic story for Tanya, who was such a fabulous character in season one, still a fabulous, hilarious character in season two. Jennifer Coolidge is a genius who is compared to Madame Butterfly and is seen as this great, fabulous diva and this tragic heroine who has this death that is so ridiculous. 
and you expect this great operatic finale for her, and instead it's like you're reaching for the high note at the end of the song and your voice breaks. It's hilarious, and it's really sad at the same time. Very cosmic joke, absurd. Is she a genius? Jennifer, Jennifer Coolidge? I think she's hilarious. I love her. I mean, I think she's a very funny, gifted, comedic actor, but, I mean, genius? I don't know. I I'm think just... we can take this debate offline. I just, I, that, that threw me for a loop. Okay. Let's do your next one. All right, let's do my next Stifler's one. Stifler's mom, forever. White Lotus was amazing. I, I think this was a really, really good year for Star Wars streaming. Um, I think I Star Wars, and actually, it was a mixed bag. It was an okay year that ended really well. The things that were really good, I thought were really good, some transcendent, and then some things that I thought meandered and had potential but never came together. I'd like to talk a little bit about the Obi-Wan show. Obi-Wan had a very difficult job of telling a story about a period of time where a man is just a hermit, unconnected to the Force, watching his best friend slash previous mentor's son grow up, who his best friend goes on to become Darth Vader, the destroyer of literal worlds. And there's not a lot happening there. It takes Ewan McGregor back into the role of Obi-Wan Kenobi. And I thought it cut together the prequels and the original movies in a way that I thought was very respectful to the material. I know that there are a lot of Star Wars fans out there that disagree, that thought that Obi-Wan wasn't a good show, but I thought it was one of the more compelling Star Wars stories because it condensed it down into the story of Obi-Wan trying to grieve the tragedy of the Purge his role in grooming Darth Vader versus his responsibility to want to protect the children and try to bring the Jedi Order back. And I thought it had to walk this line and it told a compelling narrative about how, to, um, how people can start to actively resist the fascist regime. It wasn't the best Star Wars story about that narrative, but it really did a very good job with that. And I thought it was an interesting meditation on the force to see Obi-Wan. We've only known Obi-Wan in these two places, this amazing Jedi Knight in the prequels, this amazing Jedi Knight in the originals, who is old and at the end of his career needs to usher Luke along to see Obi-Wan broken, to see Obi-Wan completely a shell of himself and to see that character heal and to be able to see his old friend, now nemesis, Darth Vader, one more time. And to be able to come to believe that, yes, Anakin is actually dead. He comes to believe that Anakin has died and a new person, Darth Vader, is born. Which is why he is comfortable telling Luke that. It adds so much weight to the line in Return of Jedi that what I told you, Luke, is true from a certain point of view. And you will find many of the truths we cling to depend entirely on our point of view. It adds credence to that point of view in a way I didn't know I really needed, in a way that I thought was great. I love the Inquisitorious. 
and I love the, the comics about the Inquisitors. I've loved seeing them in the cartoon shows, seeing the Inquisitors come to life and to see that era of Star Wars come to life in a way that I thought was really respectful to Star Wars, I thought was great. Was that the best Star Wars story told in 2022? No, but was it really, really good? It, yeah, and when I watched it, I was glued. I loved it too. You know, when you have characters in your story universe who have such depth and richness and have a comparatively small amount of time on the screen compared to many other characters in Star Wars. And also they're played by brilliant actors like Ewan McGregor. Why not learn more about them? Why not look into what those 10 years were like in between the prequels and the original movies? And I think that a lot of richness was mined from the Obi-Wan series. And it's not just Obi-Wan, right? It's Leia too. We got to learn more about Leia. And I think for, for me, for a lot of little girls who saw Star Wars when they were young, Princess Leia will always be this great hero and this great figure that we can look up to. And it was really cool to see what she was like as a kid and to see the resourcefulness, to see how, uh, how brave, how noble and how funny she is. It really felt really satisfying to, to spend more time with her, especially after losing Carrie Fisher just a few years ago. And, you know, it, we'll never see her again, but we can have this spark of what that character is. And that was really meaningful to me. It, I think I said this when we talked about it previously on one of our meditations, but it, it made the originals more powerful for me. It made the originals richer for me. And I think that is a really wonderful gift. We can debate till the cows come home, whether it's quote unquote respectful to the material, but it didn't hurt anybody in my opinion. I think it was a really wonderful show. I think it was really well done and I was moved by it. I was too. So let's move on. What's your next? It's Only Murders in the Building season two, which was... A wonderful, incredible follow-up to season one, which came out of nowhere, and I think a lot of people were excited about. I was just really happy to be with Charles, Oliver, and Mabel again. Talk about another instance of unexpected chemistry. These three people who, Martin Short and Steve Martin, obviously we've seen them together a million times, but to throw Selena Gomez into that trio was really a surprising and wonderful mix, and it created this wonderful family in season one. No sophomore slump here. Season two was excellent, was just as funny as season one, and dug deeper into the roots of these characters. This is another story where there is comedy uh, on the surface, but it's all about heart. It's all about people. It's all about people reaching out and connecting with each other. And as a story to partake of during and after the, the hardest parts of the pandemic, it really reaches, I think, a, a lot of those emotions. There were some really standout moments of this latest season. I'm thinking about all of the characters in the building singing to each other, uh, singing the, what, what did they do, The Sound of Silence? Uh, that was really wonderful and theatrical. 
one thing I love about the show is how many New Yorkers and theater people are in it and how theatrical it likes to get with how it tells its stories. Every episode is like a little play in miniature. Probably my favorite episode was one that centered on Oliver and went back into his history, went back into flashbacks and showed him playing this serial killer game at parties, which then he brought into the present day. And that was wonderful, delightful, surprising, and again, very theatrical and very classic whodunit while also highly gamified. I just could not stop laughing this season. I was, I was thrilled to meet Lucy, who is Charles's uh, surrogate daughter. I was excited to see these characters who clearly have been damaged and hurt by relationships in the past, rebuild a lot of their connections and rebuild a lot of their trust with family members, with loved ones, and with each other. So excellent season. You know, the premise really was like, what if three unlikely friends start a true crime podcast? And it's become a lot more than that, right? It has grown beyond the idea of just an odd thruple. So I love this season. I can't wait for season three. The murder mystery is back. It is huge. There's going to be more murder mystery media on our list tonight as we go on and talk about the favorite things that we streamed. I don't know if I can speak for others, but I think the reason I find tremendous comfort in the murder mystery, in particular in my 2022 years, is life is so crazy and out of control. There has been and continues to be a global pandemic. None of us are in control of it. It has dictated to so many of us how we can live our lives. It had very negatively affected Laurel and I's life. One of the reasons we moved was because we we couldn't do the things in the city that we loved, and we wanted to be in a place that we could like spread out and let our son play more because the city was and still is not over the hump with COVID. And we did this while buying a house and then selling a house. In both of those experiences, we lacked control over the housing market. It worked against us when we bought our house and it worked against us when we sold our house. I have recently opened a business. I'm going into my third year now or my second full year now. And sometimes I feel like I have no control over that. And I think for a lot of us out there, we are feeling stressed, working to the bone. We see double digit inflation and the value of our hard earned money going down. And what the murder mystery brings to me is a sense of chaos and then control, is a sense that the detective, we've talked about this way early in yeah, the beginning like of our podcast. Very beginning. And we asked the questions, what's with detective stories? Because a chaotic event happens, a crime, a murder, something terrible. No one knows what happens. And the idea is that the detective not only brings justice, but they bring order to that chaos. They're able to say, from this chaotic event, we can use 
logical detective principles to bring order to it so we can know what actually happened and we can control it so that the bad thing can't happen again because the murderer is behind bars. I think for that reason, that sense of anxiety over the pressures and stresses, not to mention in America, our political landscape is a joke. You know, there's not a lot of reasons to feel super optimistic about many things happening in the world. It feels chaotic and messy. And there's a sense of comfort in watching a story where a bunch of characters are able to gain control over a situation and right the wrong. And kudos if you can do it in a fresh and innovative and entertaining way, which only Murders in the Building is certainly able to do in spades. As podcasters, we connect with them as podcasters. It is also very much about the stresses and pressure of um, you know, baby boomers and millennials needing to exist in the same spaces, needing to share their different generational ideas. And there is a ton of conflict in America when the baby boomers and the millennials need to share spaces. It doesn't always work so well. And this is a show about those generations coming to love each other, overcoming those differences and finding their similarities. That is also just really awesome and heartwarming and easy to see because if you, you know, pop open your smartphone, pop open it, just tap the screen on your smartphone. <laughs> you, you don't have to pop open it open. Your flip phone. Yeah. And you look on Twitter and you can see, you know, uh, millennials, Gen X, um, baby boomers and Gen Zers all just throwing shade at each other all the time. Well, this is a show that brings them together and has these characters gain a semblance of control over the chaos and craziness that are the crimes that happen in their, in their home. I also thought, and kudos to the writers, I loved season one. I was skeptical if that could sustain a second season. Like, does this idea warrant more television? And my goodness, I was wrong. It absolutely does. Absolutely. You know, you were talking about the detective bringing order to chaos. You're talking about this idea of characters gaining control over chaotic situations. And from a storytelling perspective, too, there's a comforting aspect, right? Because in a piece of detective fiction, no detail is without meaning. Everything has deep significance. If you have a shot that lingers on someone putting something in their pocket, it really matters what's in their pocket. If somebody strikes a match, we got to know what that match is going to light. Everything has meaning. And that is not something that we necessarily have in our everyday lives. And this is something, you know, I have eclectic tastes because I love Twin Peaks and I love really ambiguous stuff where some things are deeply meaningful, but you don't know what they mean. And some things are not meaningful at all. They're just absurd. I love that, but I also love this. I also love retreating into the cozy mystery, retreating into the stories where every single detail matters and everything fits together like a beautiful puzzle in the end. Love it. Shall we move on to mine? Yeah. Well, we're going to stay in a similar genre here. Talking mystery, the big streaming project for me in consumption that happened in 2022 was me watching all of Veronica Mars. Yeah. And I have to put it on my top five. I loved Veronica Mars. 
for all of some of the reasons we've already talked about with the mystery show, so I won't go back into that, but a few things I'd like to talk about in that show. One, I wasn't watching it when it was on, but I certainly had those haircuts and had those clothes and listened to that music. Oh, yeah, so did and I. So there was a whole heaping lot of nostalgia for the style of the you know early 2000s that it plays around with. And I thought that was cool to kind of revisit that and look at how well, or most cases, how not well it aged. But it still brought back tons of memories for me. Two, I loved that this show was into Roman mythology. In the mythic world, in the mythic community, it is often talked about that the Roman mythology is just a pale copy of the Greek mythology, and really it's all about the Greek myths. Now, to a certain extent, this is not untrue because many of the Roman gods uh, were sort of absorbed with the Greek gods, and as the Romans went through their cultural Hellenization, which means as the Romans wanted to connect themselves to the Greeks because they were enamored with the Greek culture, they adopted a lot of their myths into their own. But there is something distinctly Roman about the Roman mythology. One, they have different names. Two, they were practiced slightly differently. And the way it was looked at is that you would have Mars and the Greeks would have Ares. And Mars would be a different but a similar adaptation of Ares in the cultic practice meaning that you might worship at a temple of Mars and Ares. You might go to a temple that would link gods from all over the place. For example, Alexander the Great in, in Egypt went and paid homage to Zeus Amon. So he went to a temple that was originally a temple for the uh, Egypt, Egyptian god, pardon me, Amon, that as the Greeks started traveling in and out of Egypt, also was a place where people would worship Zeus, so it became Zeus Amon. And the Romans adopting the sort of Greek myth into the Roman cults um, was a very common practice in the interchange of ancient religions. And what I liked about this so much was that it adopted only Roman names, only the Latin names of Roman gods, and in so many ways, America is, and the American Republic is somewhat analogous to the Roman Republic. And I really enjoyed its deep, rich uh, reference to Roman myth. Um, in particular, there's Veronica Mars, they go to Neptune High, there, there's just, it's all over the place. So you have this amazing young Kristen Bell giving a great performance as this plucky young detective who is in these Roman-inspired, pagan Roman-inspired um, California environment with this early 2000s styles, and you shake it all up, and you put it out on TV, and it's some of the most entertaining mystery shows I have ever seen. And I really am so glad, Laurel, that we made this bargain that 
Of my top five, Veronica Mars of 2022 is easily in it. Yeah, don't forget the film noir aspect of it because it is at its core a film noir, uh, you know, exploration with the unexpected ingredient of the teen girl detective, Nancy Drew style, but with lots of hard-boiled attitude. I am so glad that it made your top five, given that it came out in like 2005. That is amazing. And it was really wonderful sharing it with you. You know, we have shared with each other some of our favorite TV shows over the last few years that we've been together. And it's always a pleasure and it always teaches us something about each other to watch things that are important to us or were important to us in our most formative years. Veronica Mars is something that I watched not right when it was on, but right after. I got it all on DVD, like maybe two or three years after the first um, three seasons aired. And I watched it because I was a huge Buffy fan. And someone was like, you've got to watch Veronica Mars. It's basically the next Buffy. And it is definitely speaking to that part of me in many ways, because you've got this really intrepid young woman character who solves crimes versus fights demons, who has this really interesting heroic storyline but Veronica is just a, a character all her own. She is not a repackaging of Buffy in any way. And the fact that we are able to check in with her at all these different times in her life, through her high school and college years in the original series, then later in the movie and through the novelizations or the novels. And then in 2018, we got to check in with her when she's my age. And it's amazing to watch a character who is so deeply flawed, right? She's this, she's our hero and we identify with her and we relate to her and we love her, but she has big flaws and we sometimes love her for those flaws and we sometimes curse her for those flaws. And there's such an honesty about it, even though it is this heightened, non-realistic show. Um, so I, I love it. I'm glad that you love it. I'm glad that you were able to get through all of the like, teen girliness of the early seasons where she's always obsessed with who her romantic partner is, which I love, but I thought you would be uh, turned off by. And I'm just so happy that you were willing to share it with me. I loved it. I did not think, though there were romantic entanglements, the show was never about Veronica's love life. It was always how who she was dating or was not dating mattered to the mystery at hand rather than this is a show about a girl who dates boys who occasionally solves mysteries. No, this is a girl who solves mysteries and is trying to figure out what does it mean to be a girl who solves mysteries who also wants to date boys? Yeah, awesome. I, so th I, I did. I loved it. What's your next one? So my next one is Severance. And we did a full episode on it, so I don't think I'll spend too much time on it because you can head back and listen to that episode. It's called waffle party and it came out earlier this year but severance was apple tv plus's big show this year and it really caught a lot of us by surprise we weren't really we, were, we didn't really understand what it was until deep into the first episode and while you can make a lot of comparisons you could say it's sort of like a black mirror episode it's sort of like lost uh it is sort of like those things but it's still very unique in a really a way that feels really current, feels really present, right? You've got magnificent performances by the characters. You have a top-notch mystery that's being unraveled that we still have very few answers to. 
And you have a very deep social capitalist critique that is something I haven't seen before. It, it is exploring the complexities and the toxicities of late capitalism in a way that is very sci-fi and very, very far-fetched in some ways, but when you really think about it, it does not seem that far off. The idea of there being a procedure by which you physically separate the parts of your brain that labor and the parts of your brain that are not at work. And it dives into all the philosophical and ethical questions that go along with that kind of uh, capitalistic exercise and does so in a really, really rich way through some really fascinating characters. Yeah, I don't want to say too much more because we did do an entire episode on it. Um, I loved it. I thought it was great. Looking forward to season two for all the reasons you just said. Excellent. Take it away with yours. I'm going to make a, just a slight tweak as we are going through this from what we originally planned. I want to give some love to I thought was the most interesting thing Marvel has done in 2022. Granted, I have not seen Black Panther Wakanda forever, so I could change my opinion after I see that, but they don't put those out for streaming like they used to. I have to wait for them. It was a strange year for Marvel. Marvel has been the behemoth, and I think post-Endgame, we can all admit it's struggling to feel like it has a direction. It really wants to do everything all at once at all times through streaming, through these huge movies. It had some big successes. The movies that I saw in 2022, I saw Spider-Man, uh, No Way Home. I saw Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness. Both I thought were okay affairs. Um, I enjoyed Spider-Man. It's the first and only Spider-Man movie I've seen once and said, great, don't ever need to see that again. Um, though I liked it when I saw it. Uh, Doctor Strange Multiverse of Madness, I thought, was probably the first truly bad yeah, Marvel movie that I have seen that I'm just like, I don't think there's a ton of redeeming qualities to it. Um, no disrespect to the Doctor Strange Multiverse of Madness fans out there. I thought a lot of the shows didn't really hit for me in the ways that they normally, I thought, would have. In general, I'm low on the MCU because once the pandemic happened and then Arthur was born and we stopped seeing every MCU movie multiple times in the theater, once that ritual was broken, I realized I didn't miss it. I kind of felt free from it, free from having to see the next Marvel thing so we could talk about the next Marvel thing and seeing it once or twice and dissecting every Easter egg. And I've been glad that the MCU is not as prolific in my life. That being stated, I really thought there was something truly fun and unique in She-Hulk. I agree. I thought She-Hulk hit the mark for me in ways that other things in Marvel in 2022 did not. I don't think She-Hulk was a quote-unquote perfect television show. I think they need to figure out the CGI of the She-Hulk because sometimes there is a little bit of, it just looked like a bad video game. But I think the fourth wall breaking is a trope that we have seen in the superhero cinema and streaming genre before with Deadpool. 
And I thought it was done to great effects because Ryan Reynolds is just such a charismatic uh, actor. Those movies are so zany. But this was the first time where I felt like I'm really glad this character's talking to me. Yeah. I'm really glad that they're breaking the, th the fourth wall. Continuing with the themes that we have seen in some of the other media that we've picked out, which is toxic masculinity and the effects of to toxic masculinity, we have these great scenes where She-Hulk just learns how to be a Hulk really easily, where it was really hard for Bruce Banner the Hulk. And the reason is she's been controlling rage her whole life because she's had to deal with toxic masculinity her entire life that I thought were really interesting meditations for myself, a man who can be a toxically masculine at times to be like, yeah, you know, it's not about my rage and my anger. And I thought that it was fresh. It was unique. It was, it was funny and clever and not in the standard Marvel. Um, what's the word I'm looking for? The Marvel were going to undercut all tension with a bad joke. It felt like it was funny and it landed when it needed to. I'd like to see She-Hulk season two really kind of embrace a little more of the lawyer aspect. I felt like that part was a little missing, but in general, it was a really, like it was the only Marvel thing that happened in 2022 that I really loved, that I couldn't wait to see more of, and I think it's worthy of my top five. Yeah, I absolutely agree. So I want to agree with you saying that the fourth wall breaks were something that was just satisfying, right? I like her and I feel like she's my friend and she's not just breaking the fourth wall to crack a joke. She's breaking the fourth wall because she wants to invite me into her world and she wants my feedback. And that's kind of cool. It feels interactive in a way. It feels like you're texting your bestie. Tatiana Maslany. Oh my God, I can't even say it. Tatiana Maslany. She's amazing. She's so funny. She's so genuine. She's so she's so good. And she plays both aspects of this character in a way that is really cool and satisfying to see. And I love that it's not, it, you know, it, at the finale, she says, we don't always have to go bigger, right? It doesn't have to be a sky beam. It doesn't have to be end game every time. You can just live with my stakes. And my stakes are like figuring out how to be Jen and She-Hulk and how to integrate these sides of my personality and how to go through my life when there will be incredible challenges on me as a woman and as a Hulk. And that is enough. Like I am enough for a whole streaming show. You don't have to throw everything at the wall every single time. And yeah, maybe the wink is just to pacify us until we get over to the next thing and then we're like, okay, I want an end game again. But I liked it. I thought it was fun. I thought it was fresh. I thought there was some originality to it. And it was just, it was just a good time. And I like that Marvel, even when it doesn't always hit a home run in the streaming, I like that they're allowing a lot of experimentation in their streaming. I like the streaming aspect right now of Marvel better than the cinematic aspect. I'm not so into the movies, the shows I'm more into. Part of that is just pure functionality. I don't get to go see the movies, but I can see the streaming shows as soon as they're out. So part of that is my life and my lifestyle. The other part of that is that the movies are pretty formulaic. The, the, you know what's coming. 
She-Hulk surprised me. It surprised me at every turn. And I really like that. I want Marvel to keep doing that. And even other Marvel things that I didn't care for as much in streaming, they still surprised me. They still did new and different things. And I'm really enjoying that part of Marvel. Yeah, I agree. There's so much freedom that they have in streaming and we can experience it a little bit more like a comic book universe, right? New formats, new ways of telling stories, sometimes getting it wrong, but sometimes getting it really, really right. So we're down to our fifth and final. And I know I said it wasn't ranked, but for me, my fifth one is my number one. Okay. Are you going to go or am I going to go? No, you're up. But I'm just curious. Did you save your favorite one for last or no? I did save my favorite one for last. And I also think it's the only movie on my list. And it's funny. You already planted an Easter egg for it because you said that Marvel was trying to do everything all at once. And my number one for 2022 is the Daniels, everything, everywhere, all at once. Genius. Oh my God, what a good movie. And plays on the multiverse in a way Marvel could never. It's funny. It is poignant. It's sentimental. It's heartfelt. It is a story about family. It's a story about taxes. It's a story about saving the multiverse. You have stellar performances by the likes of Michelle Yeoh, who I hope wins an Oscar. You also have Stephanie Sue really stepping it up. Jamie Lee Curtis has hot dog fingers in this. And then I apologize if I say, if I say his name wrong. Kehoi Kwan, who we all loved as kids or maybe didn't love as kids in the Goonies and the Indiana Jones franchise, turning in an incredibly powerful performance as Waymond. So I really hope to see Oscar nods for a lot of the performances in here. And I hope to see Oscar nods for the screenplay, for uh, direction, for best picture. I think this is going to be a big award winner. And I love that it takes this big, high-concept idea of the multiverse is breaking down, so we need to find a chosen one to rescue it, and it chooses the seemingly least likely hero uh, and turns that person into uh, an incredibly talented, into an incredibly capacious hero, and it gives all of us so much to think about in terms of the life that we're living. Are we living the best version of our life? Does that even matter? Should we really just look around and embrace the people around us and be thankful for what we have and try to do our best to live a good life? It plays with some really fabulous imagery like the everything bagel uh, of nothingness, this void of a bagel, this this thing with a hole in it, And then on the other side, the googly eye, this white space with something filling it. And that's life, right? That's existence. Existence might be a bagel. It might have a hole at the center, but we can choose to put something in that hole. Like we can choose to fill our lives with meaning. It does existentialism in a way that I think is really accessible and it does it through a sci-fi fantasy action adventure martial arts movie. Really just ambitious, fabulous. Uh, I think we should do a whole episode on it, but we'll see. Yeah, sure. I love this movie as well. I think 2022 was another year of multiverse, and we're in a place where many, many stories, 
and intellectual properties are embracing the idea that there are multiple versions of the same reality happening simultaneously and there are pathways between these realities, hence the multiverse. We actually did an entire episode about the likely existence of a multiverse in our Into the Spider-Verse episode. So if you want to know what we think about that, go back and check that out. I actually interviewed a friend of mine who is a physicist who helped kind of brush me up on what it means to have a multiverse for that episode. But I, I think the stories that get the multiverse, I don't want to go so far as to say the word right, but get the multiverse in a way that I get hooked in are the ones that deal with the personal implications yeah. of infinite versions of yourself. You now know for a fact that you are one of you know, thousands, millions, or infinite versions of you. What does that mean for you? What are the implications both philosophically, morally, to be more specific, theologically, um, and, and how do you reconcile knowing that you are just one of all of these different versions? I think Rick and Morty always got that well about yeah. the multiverse, and I think everything everywhere all at once is about that true existential dilemma of confronted with overwhelming evidence, not only of the universe's indifference or hostility, but several versions of the universe's um, indifference and hostility towards your existence. How do you reconcile that you might not even be the best version of you. You could be the most mediocre version of you. How do you reconcile once you're confronted with that reality? How do you reconcile who you are? And it does take a deep existential message in that you've got to figure out meaning for yourself. The universe isn't going to give it to you. You've got to make the choice to do it for yourself. It reminds me of one of my favorite works of philosophy by Jean-Paul Chartres, Existentialism and Human Emotions. I absolutely adore that work of philosophy. And I think this movie really understands that once the multiverse is made empirically true, we now know there are thousands, millions, however many versions of reality. What does that mean for you as a person? How do you reconcile this? And it does so in a way that I think is also another major theme in us with 2022 is parenthood because we became parents. And this is a story about a mother trying to connect to her daughter. And in every reality imaginable, this has been a struggle for the mother and the daughter. And this is about them finally being able to really talk and communicate and learn how to communicate with each other. And it was really bizarre and weird and heartwarming and touching and violent and crazy. And it was, yeah, easily one of, if not the best movies I saw in 2022. Love it. What is your number one, Derek? Oh, my number one. My number one thing that I watched in general in 2022 was... Andor. I loved this show 
I was not prepared to love this show. I thought Rogue One was a fine movie, a good movie, but I didn't think it was a great movie. I don't understand the Star Wars fan that thinks that Rogue One's the best Star Wars movie. I respect you as a Star Wars fan and that you have a different opinion of mine, but Rogue One is a movie that doesn't need to exist. It, the idea that it answers some sort of plot hole, I never got because how does the Death Star get destroyed so simply? It was always hubris. It was the fact that they did not ever think a small fighter like an X-Wing could be a threat. And you don't really need to know more about the engineering than that. It's about the symbolism, not how was the Death Star actually built. Um, that being stated, I thought Rogue One was a good movie. I enjoyed it. I didn't particularly care for the character Cassian. Um, and or at all in Rogue One. Not that I thought it was acted poorly or anything. I think he's kind of a jerk. He shoots someone in the back, and then in the end, he becomes a self-sacrificing hero. And it felt like his character arc in Rogue One in particular didn't make a ton of sense. At the very least, was cut short and rushed from, you know, villainous by forcing our hero into something she didn't want to do which is Jalen Erso and forcing her into the rebellion that she didn't want to be a part of. But in the end, he does become a hero. And I was sad that he got blown up by the Death Star. But did this character deserve his own show? Especially after watching Obi-Wan, which I thought that was the home run. That's the Star Wars content that we need. Furthermore, the thing I love the most about Star Wars is the conflict of the Jedi and the Sith, the light side and the dark side. I want to see space wizards with laser swords. So this show about someone who seemingly has little to no connection with any side of the force, how could this show be good? And oh my goodness, this show was good. It took the visual style of the streaming world of Star Wars to a new level. It decided to, to shoot more on location, less on CG. It looks gritty and grimy when it needs to. It shows us the inner workings of the bureaucracy of the Empire in a way that it's a bunch of bureaucrats trying to cut each other's throat to get on top and trying to manipulate each other so that they can better position their careers within the Empire. It shows us how hard it is to resist and the cost of doing what you need to do so the resistance could exist. And it, it has this beautiful message that fascism is so innately wrong, but it is not innately going to be stopped. It can and will rule and dominate everything within that system. And it takes a lot of effort to try to even slow it down, let alone stop it. I thought it was the, the, the creme de la creme for me of 2022. There is nothing I enjoyed more than Cassian Andor, uh, Andor, I should say, Cassian Andor's story. The Cassian Andor hour. It, there is nothing I adored more. I didn't expect to endure to love it as much as I did. 
I kind of put it on reluctantly. You didn't even really want to watch it, if I remember correctly. It just took me a little bit to get into it. And then once I was into it, I was like, all right, here we go. Um, but it did take me a little bit of time. And I love that it was a story that balanced both the structural elements, e.g. the fascist society and its effect on the characters, versus the individual elements, like um, Andor wanting to return to his adopted mother, um, Andor not wanting to be part of the rebellion, and all of the individual motivations in a way that I haven't seen since the first five seasons of Game of Thrones, being like, these characters are stuck in a system, and the system's going to dictate their choices, and they're not really free in a full sense, but they're going to be able, what they do or don't do in that system is really going to matter. So it was both structural and individual. I thought they balanced that in a way that is some of the best Star Wars storytelling. I have a little twinge of sadness that it's not for kids. It's particularly geared towards adults. It's not something I'm going to watch with my son. And I do wonder what's Star Wars like without its whimsy, without it fundamentally being a kid's story. Um, that being stated, uh, I still loved it. Yeah, and I think it it took advantage of so much opportunity to really explore the consequences and the reluctance to resist. It also worked with that idea of the Empire's hubris, right? How many times does Andor say, nobody's listening to us? You can say what you want to say in this prison. No one is tapping your phones. You can just walk in like you own the place and nobody cares because they are so proud and they do not believe people will resist. So that's how you take your opportunity. You catch them by surprise. They're unprepared and they think everybody doesn't know it. And that is a really interesting way to make this character the keystone, right? He is this slippery character who has discovered how to exploit a weakness in the empire. And everywhere he goes, he plants that seed with a new group of people. And some of those people don't make it out alive, but some of those people do and they rise up and they start an insurrection. It really was the prison arc that finally drew me in because I was, like you, my favorite part of Star Wars is Space Wizards and the Force and Jedi and whimsy and fantasy. And so I was like, do I really need a gritty, dark, realistic Star Wars that is all about a beaten down people enduring fascism? Like, I just feel like it's going to bring me down. And also, like, the story of an outlaw who has no morals and then becomes a rebel is something that Star Wars already did not terribly well in Solo. So I was like, do I really need this? And then the prison arc is what took me from a non-believer, a skeptic, into like a, okay, I am deep in this story. Because in a very short amount of time, it was able to introduce new characters, introduce a totally new system and setting and, uh, and rules complex, and then build a unique and moving story around those characters in that setting. Andy Serkis's character and Andy Serkis's performance is just so powerful. Like I would watch that movie and it was the, um, 
it was the turning point of Andor for me. So loved it. So much of Star Wars post Disney buying Lucasfilm has relied on, and granted to degrees, but has relied on intertextual references. They have been drawing upon our love of the original trilogy and pointing to things in the original trilogy in order to garner our attention. Very little of it has been new. Rogue One's a great example of that. If you don't know what the Death Star is, who Darth Vader is, the fact that an X-Wing could take it down, that movie makes no sense. The entire movie is drawing from and pointing to Star Wars A New Hope. And a lot of Star Wars has lived within that intertextual soup. This makes sense because we all love the original trilogy. It has made so much, it has meant so much rather to us throughout the years. Why not use that in your storytelling? And Obi-Wan, for example, does this to great effect in many ways. For example, when Obi-Wan is looking at Leia and they are traveling, trying to get Leia back, and Obi-Wan mentions how much Leia reminds him of his mother. Well, if you don't know that he's talking about Queen and Senator Amidala, that line means nothing. So that is an intertextual reference. What I liked about Andor was there was very little of that. It was not the emotional moments, the payoff moments were not relying on us drawing upon another Star Wars reference or text. The biggest thing is at the very end is we learned the prisons making Death Star parts. But that happens at the very end. That's not a major plot point. And I like that it was very original and fresh in the universe, but not relying upon us being a Star Wars fan of another era or time or property. And it gives me hope that Star Wars can tell fresh and new stories. The one knock of Obi-Wan, if I'm going to give it a knock, and I loved it. And I don't, um, No, of Obi-Wan. Oh, of Obi-Wan, sorry. Um, the one knock I have of it is that it's entirely intertextual. Right. It's entirely reliant on us knowing the original movies and the sequels and probably having watched Clone Wars 2. Not necessary for Clone Wars, but if you don't know the story of the originals and then the prequels, that movie makes no sense at all. Andor is in the Star Wars universe, but not reliant upon it. You don't need to know who Luke Skywalker was. You don't need to know Rogue One at all for that story to make sense. And I hope it's something that Star Wars continues to do more. Tell original stories. Tell me a story about a character. And that character can be anything from a Sith Lord to Andor. And just tell me that story in that universe. And that in and of itself is enough. You don't always have to have Darth Vader and Obi-Wan in everything. And I still don't want them to stop telling those stories either. Tell those too. But Andor really made me think there's so much in the galaxy far, far away not told yet. I want to know about the person who is fueling the X-Wings. What's their journey like? What got them there? Because there's a great story there too. 
If they can do Andor like that, I want to see it all. The universe, the galaxy is your oyster. Like, let's have some fun with it. Well, Derek, we've come to the end of our top five. I want to throw a couple honorable mentions out there. Stranger Things 4, a lot of fun. Uh, Rings of Power, I did love, even if it was pretty much all fan service, but it was an extraordinary achievement in television production, and I thought some really great stories that were told. Hacks Season 2 was an excellent, fun time. Spirited on Apple TV Plus was a really great holiday musical, something that I didn't know that I need. Wait, no, I did know that I needed that. I always need a great holiday musical with Will Ferrell and Ryan Reynolds. Any other honorable mentions for you? Glass Onion. Glass Onion. Loved it. Almost made my top five. Yeah, we were going to talk about it. Absolutely loved Glass Onion. Thought it was a blast. Awesome. Anything else you want to say about 2022 or any any wishes you want to leave us with for 2023? Nope. This episode's well over time. Until next time, be kind.